you know, uh, winning Jeopardy taught me something. You know, I appeared on the last episode with Alex Trebek, and I never expected to go viral. I, I thought I had no idea that people would latch onto that story and how it reminded people of their own experiences and how it reminded people of family. I had never seen a happier group of children in my entire life than these kids that were super skinny. Some of them, they, they often all had raggedy clothes and holes in their shirts, and they were just happy to live another day. The way the question is now framed, just by the mere fact that there is exposure to multiple options, you forget the option of neither. So just like that, I think that can even be applicable to a party, right? If you think of one side versus the other, and when in reality, you could also just pick a person based on their meritocracy, their values. And so what is failing? Why is there so much division? Well, it's because the political parties realized, hey, if we make it a moral war of good versus evil, if we say, hey, the problem is not with the politician, it's with the people who support the politician, that's how we get you. We give up our right for independence, for the safety of interdependence. And as a consequence, we yield, we yield, we yield. But if you yield too much, you're nothing more than a slave. Hey friends, you're tuned in to the Learn or Be Learn podcast, a show where wisdom meets curiosity in order to discover the human experience. I'm your host, Shiva D, and remember, you either learn from or you're learned from. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, friends, to another great episode. So today I have Bert Thakur. We actually met locally at our gym, and we hit it off. And you know, he mentioned that he's running for Congress. He's a con congressional candidate. And then I talked about my podcast. And then a month later, here we are. So you know, actually, Bert and I were having quite a great conversation. I had to stop him midway and say, you know. Uh, I think we should start recording this because I think the people would love to hear this. And I think, you know, there's a lot of great points that we were discussing. So, you know, before jumping right back into it, Bert, I'm I'm glad you're on the show and, and I appreciate you being here. Uh, Shiva, first of all, thank you so much. And to everybody listening, uh, we were actually talking because Shiva has this incredible painting in the back, right? So I asked him, <laughs> I said, hey, buddy, where'd you get that? So then Shiva told me how we mm -hmm. spent time with a with a tribe in the outskirts of Kenya in the desert, which led us to talking about what joy is. And so, Shiva, if you don't mind, <laughs> would you would you tell us uh, about your experiences about effectively trying ice for the first time again after forgetting <laughs> what it was? I guess I'll start off. Yeah, so I did biological anthropology research in Kenya for six weeks, where. Essentially, we collected different anthropometric data, which is, you know, height, weight, BMI, blood pressure, you know, blood work, all this stuff. And we compared them to each indigenous group, different community tribes, and to see if there was any statistical significance in, in their health and the way of life and how they live. So Bert starts asking me, you know, well, what were some of the things you, you know, noticed and, and what does joy mean to you? And that got us on the topic of how 
I shared a little story about how I would work you know, 14 hour days in the heat and, and it was really intense, but really rewarding. And just walking on the sand was joyful. And twice I remember on that trip, they had these coolers that had solar power on them and they were meant for the blood samples, but we only collected them at the end of the trip. So they surprised us twice by putting soda cans in there and then giving us a soda one night. And I remember the joy on not just my face, literally everybody's to taste a cold sugary beverage because we hadn't had sugar in forever. We hadn't had something cold in a long time because, you know, the water bottles would just sit there in the heat. So we'd be drinking warm water all day, every day. And, and it was an absolutely joyful moment. One that I cannot forget and had never experienced with something so minor, right? Something so small gave me such joy in that very moment. And then that led us to the topic of joy. Uh, Shiva, I have to ask, what kind of soda was it? <laughs> <laughs> they had they had Coke, Sprite, and Dr. Pepper. I think I went with Sprite. Oh, excellent. Well, uh, <laughs> it, it, the, 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 you know, one of the more interesting things to me is uh, trying something for the first time. So I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I grew up in India, in the uh, in, literally in the jungles. My grandfather raised me, and my grandfather was first actually of a few kids who who lived past his childhood, and he um, was fortunate enough uh, to have an older brother who helped to basically finance his studies. And uh, the famous story goes: her, our great grandmother had one set of earrings. That's the only possession she had. She had these gold earrings and she gave one of them to my grandfather's brother, mm -hmm. stepbrother to basically pay for his education. And, uh, my grandfather got accepted into the forestry department, which was a pretty big deal back then. You know, at that time, uh, we're talking post-colonial India. It's still heavily invested by the British. It was considered a, you know, tough position to get into. He was mm -hmm. fortunate enough. So literally goes from the village with nothing to getting into the forestry department, which is a, a very big honor. And um, he ends up rising to the to the top of the forestry department. He became the chief commissioner of forest for the state of Bihar. So when my parents had an opportunity to come here to the United States, they left their one-year-old son under the care of their, my grandson. You think about the sacrifices mm -hmm. that a lot of people have made to come here. But my childhood was spent on the backs of elephants going from game reserve to game reserve. I thought everybody had a pet elephant. <laughs> the elephant turns out that's not the case. Uh, I Did remember you see seeing, tigers? Oh, yeah. All the time. We had a tiger cub. Uh, the, mm. the mother was uh, was not there, so they found a little tiger cub by the mother who, who died. And uh, so we had a tiger cub. They got sent to the zoo, obviously. And... Uh, it was a pretty insane childhood to, to go from that experience and then going to a different jungle of New York. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, my, my parents, just like uh, other immigrants, you know, my, my dad is another story. He came here to this country with $150 in his pocket and a dream and managed to make the life for himself that he has today. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible thing to be in a place uh, like we are uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, to see such a vibrant community of people who have come from all walks of life. And I think the beauty 
the the true beauty of our country is this concept of hope. And uh, to those people who are listening, that was something that we were actually mid-conversation and Shiva said, hey, we should really start recording this. I see a lack of hope in our society for the first time since I've lived here. To me, America is nothing but hope. Hope is uniquely American and it's such a good thing. It was the hope that I had uh, to make friends. You know, I looked over at my grandfather when we were coming here and I said, Papa, you know, how do I tell who's an American? Because I wanted to have friends. I'd never seen white people before. You know, where, where, where we grew up, you could tell a lot about somebody just by their name. You right. knew what religion they are. You knew what, where they worked sometimes. You knew what they would eat. Sometimes you even knew where they came from, right? Just by <laughs> Right. Right? Isn't that crazy to think about? I go as far to say as I've noticed people even just looking at you can start to tell you those absolutely. things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And 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 in a in a you know totally heterogeneous society like we are, that that's such a foreign concept, you know? Mm -hmm. Because just by looking at somebody in the street, you can't even you can't tell how much money they have, what they do, where they come from, who they are, what their religion is. I mean, unless they're overtly displaying these these, you know, these um shibboleths of, mm. of, of, of status or stature, you have no idea mm. what they are, right? And so I asked my, my grandfather, because I said, how do I tell who's an American? You know, yeah, right. there's an Asian guy, I've never <laughs> seen somebody who's Asian, there's a white person, I've never seen, right, like, how right. do I tell, and my grandfather said, it is, you know, obviously this is in Hindi, but never forgotten, and he said, the Japanese are hardworking, the Germans are punctual, but an American, you could trust them with a handshake. You think about that. That was the ethos of what America was seven thousand miles away at the end of the eighties. Mm -hmm. And there's a, and I still believe that. You know, I I think America, the 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 America. My first vision of America was when our Pan Am seven forty seven broke through the clouds, and there's Manhattan, you know, at night, lit up, and I thought the streets of New York were literally paved with gold, because once again in India we had the Typical, you know, yellow sodium uh, vapor lights. Everything is yellow, you know, the, <laughs> yeah, especially at yeah. the end of the 80s, you know. And here there are all these lights. I'd never seen lights with different colors, you know, sprawled across the city. I remember having to us to wait for the power outage to come back. <laughs> Non-stop <laughs> power outages. And, and I remember thinking, wow, the streets of New York must be paved. And guess what? I found out they were. Our country is literally paved with ingots of possibilities. So when I when I meet people like that, like that young lady I met the other night at a restaurant who's going to community college and is working on, you know, getting her associates and then her bachelor's, and I said, what's, what's the matter? You know, you look a little sad. She said, well, I, I feel hopeless. So what do you mean you feel hopeless? She said, well, I have no hope. There's no guarantee that I'm going to be successful. And I, and I thought to myself, this is... The polar opposite of America. You know, we are truly the richest, most wealthy, the most uniquely driven country in the entire world. You know, the analogy I'll give, if I were to use a box of tools, okay? If I laid out a box of tools in a warehouse, right? And, right. and once again, this is me being very reductive, but if you took people from another country, they would wait to be told what to do, okay? 
you, you take a group of Americans and you put them in a warehouse with a box <laughs> of tools. Before you know it, somebody's taking out a hammer, hammering, figuring out what to do, reading the instructions. <laughs> something's going to get, ha something will happen. You know what I mean? Mm. You know, that, the hope is, is quintessentially American. Hope is what got us to the moon in less than a decade when Kennedy said, hey, we're going to get up there. And the reason I decided to run for Congress, by the way, to those listening, I'm, I'm running for Congress in, uh, <laughs> in Texas three. I'm running as mm -hmm. a, as a Republican in Collin County in Hunt County. And ultimately what got me running was when I saw that plane take off from Afghanistan and I saw people clinging to the wings in the hopes that they could escape Afghanistan. And then they were falling off. You know, that image is seared in my brain. It is so symbolic of the trajectory our country is headed in. Now, I was in the U.S. Navy uh, during 9-11. You know, I, I enlisted in the Navy in 2000. Uh, I went to high school, actually, a block away from the World Trade Center. The first high school I went to was Stuyvesant High School. It was a block and a half away from the World Trade Center. And I'll never forget 9-11. You know, those of us who are, I, I don't know if you are old enough, Shiva, but that day was... I was pretty young. Yeah, you were pretty young, man. And the, America <laughs> was a different country before 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to, to, to go from 9-11 and to think of the trillions of dollars that we've spent uh, to build up Afghanistan and then to see it bookended with Afghanis who were trying to flee the country and then falling off an airplane as it's taking off as we're fleeing with our tail between our legs without telling our allies to, it was, and leaving Americans behind to me was the final straw. And I thought to myself, we are financing foreign wars. We are rebuilding other countries. We are meddling in the affairs of everybody else instead of investing in infrastructure here, instead of fixing our schools, instead of fixing our bridges, which are over 50 years old. You know, 50% of the bridges are over 50 years old. We have transmission lines that are not, properly transmitting power. I mean, you've seen what happened in Texas when the grid failed. Mm -hmm. You know, a single, truly a single X-class solar flare could wipe out large portions of the grid. We're doing nothing about it. We have supply chain issues that were completely gutted because of COVID. You know, we saw that firsthand from PPE to toilet paper to transistors, the semiconductors, Right. you know? Right. And what do we have? We have politicians who are running to fund a war in Europe. We have, a we have politicians who are running to fund wars in Sudan and Syria. But hey, when it comes to feeding kids in school, whoa, whoa, whoa. When it comes to allocating money for a capital infrastructure product, whoa, whoa, whoa. And so going back to the original point, why am I running and what did I hope to accomplish? Well, I had this thought. I said, okay, if I do get a chance in government, what is the end goal? Right. What, what is, if I were to think of the term legacy, what would the legacy be? What is the purpose? And I had this kind of far-fetched vision where I literally saw, I, I saw a future where the first child is born in space. And I said to myself, I want that child to be an American. I see it clear as day. I see an American spacecraft and I see a child being born in space. It's the first child born in space. I thought to myself, wow. This Congress is so myopic. Our government, our leaders are so myopic that if you were to pull 435 of them, because that's how many there are, I, I, I will, I, I'll, 
we'd be lucky if we find one who wouldn't laugh that image off. And I say, why? Why can't we be dreaming of a future like that? And as opposed to constantly looking to the past to find solutions, why aren't we reverse engineering a future and creating that future now? Why aren't we taking the steps that empower people to dream that big? And it comes down to this. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? right. To, in order to think like that, you know, that is at the very tippy, 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 tippy top. But right now we're in a place where people don't have shelter. We can't afford homes, right? The average cost of a home, 500 grand, right? That means that you have so to- So do make, you think this yeah. idea of hope being lost is due to the hierarchy of needs not being met? 100%, 100%. Find any society, find any society that loses its joy. It's because somewhere, you know, the Chinese called it the mandate of heaven. It, the, the, you know, somebody, somebody fails in their task to provide the basic needs for the people. And if we're in a situation where we are, we are placated in a sense, uh, by having moral outrages over wedge issues, you know, we are sacrificing the 80% good for the hundred percent platonic for the hundred percent ideal. Nobody will be perfect a hundred percent of the time. I'll bet my entire life savings, whatever on it. Nobody. <laughs> right. But what I do know is that there are, there are ideas that can always be optimized. So for example, immigration, let's talk about immigration right now. Pardon me. Uh, I spent so much time, um, along the border. Uh, I, I drove the entire length of the Southern border, starting in San Diego, ending up to the tip of Texas. I drove up and down farm road, not up and down, but I had to do a U-turn. So technically up and down farm road, uh, the farm road down South, which goes from Big Bend National Park all the way up to Marfa, you know, where parts mm -hmm. of that highway actually crisscross over to Mexico. I spent mm -hmm. time in border towns where sheriffs were showing me, hey, we have three active cartels and we need cash dogs from the federal government because there are houses that we find with a billion dollars in cash and these people to sniff it out. I spoke to border patrol agents that are like, hey, how do I deal with the cartel, which is you know, going through the desert in a $300,000 trophy truck. And he showed me his GMC, which is from 2010. And they have to buy their own flashlights and gear. I spoke to ICE mm -hmm. detention centers. They said, well, you know, the majority of people coming in are young men. They're not really families. And I've also spent time on farms where I saw some of the most hardworking people you've ever seen starting at three o'clock in the morning. And there's this wink, wink, nod, nod. We need you. And we can't do this without... But at the same time, hey, what about our community? What about the three plus million Indians who are here on H-1B visa hell, who are stuck basically being indentured servants, albeit well-paid indentured servants at times, but they're stuck with their H-1B visas. You know, here we right. are quickly to cry out about Dubai and the UAE and this and that for having, you know, them taking your passports. But isn't that the same similar situation? Because now you have people who are being told, hey, you have a 115 year wait until you can apply for a green card. These are Indians, Vietnamese, you have Chinese, you have people who are skilled laborers here who, guess what? If they were to try to go to community college, they'd have to pay the highest out-of-state tuition cost, which ends up being, what, 50 grand at a community college. Yet, an illegal immigrant, yes, I'll say, because guess what? It's inflammatory. Maybe somebody will listen, right? Why is that person, why does that person getting more rights than somebody who has been here and is trying to do things legally? And then it goes back to a further question. Why have we even created a situation 
where three and a half million people a year think it's okay to cross the Sonoran Desert to get here. So, solution. My idea, let's create a seasonal migrant worker visa. You come here, you work seasonally, you're documented. If you want to extend it, you can do so with your employer. It adds time, okay? For DACA kids, once again, I understand it is no fault of your own, but let's start with some kind of a, a, a path. So my idea is this, if you're between 18 and 35, let's get you a waiver. Let's have you join the military. After a few years of service, you get out with an honorable discharge, you get your citizenship if you're a DACA. You know, when it comes right. to when it comes to the housing crisis, right? I don't know what the right answers are, but I can tell you this, we have we have been utilizing EB5 program to help the wealthiest in the world come and get, you know, green cards for $500,000 a pop. And what do you do? You're coming in, you're building a housing tract in the worst part of town, artificially inflating it. Uh, so each unit costs $1,500, $1,800 a month in rent. And how, so how about we figure out how to take care of that solution? We can create some kind of a thing that's not Section 8, but we can actually, I, I don't know, maybe we can create a different type of a loan uh, that can actually serve somebody where, you know, it's a, it's a push-pull, it's a federal loan. We can do something like the VA home loan. Right. Even taking like a step back, you know, I think oftentimes we see in another big issue here is what I'm, what my head is going to is two yeah. things. One is we are not often taught the right things in order to go into this world, right? Yes. We go through this indoctrination system, come out of it and we go, now what? You know, I don't, right. I, you know, I, I have... You know, I just went through college. You ha you'll have massive debts. Now you need a car. Now you need an apartment. Things are going up. Prices are going up, and you weren't taught, you know, fin financial literacy. You know, when you mentioned trade schools and things, and you're not taught high income skills. You're just told do whatever you want. It's not really a big deal until it becomes a big deal. And then I think the other part of that, the second point my head was getting to, is we've reached a point in society where I don't believe we can have civil discourse anymore. I don't think we can agree to disagree on things, which is a shame because that's where ideas are truly made is when people feel comfortable sharing oppositions to reach whether it's a compromise or reach, you know, the best believed decision. You know, the 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 it's safer to live in an echo chain because then your thoughts are challenged. You know, I mm -hmm. I, I think what one of the biggest things, and it's not exactly, pardon me, the, the preeminent thing that I speak about to most people, but you actually hit the nail on the head. I've, I've said it before. One of my one of my secret desires is to get federal funding so every child, uh, when they graduate high school, knows how to create an LLC, knows how to treat a dollar as an asset, knows the difference between an S corp and a C corp, and so they are in a sense, given the tools to become creators, you know, part of, part of this mission is truly, and, you know, we, we have to start thinking about how we evolve, uh, from a philosophical level for the challenges of the next generation, right? So education, the current education system was very good for the industrial revolution. It primed people to work in a factory. You know, you sit in rows, you get a bell, uh, you know, it's from eight to four, eight to three, you know, just like a factory would be. Uh, you have an hour for lunch. You pass every, all the work from the back to the front. You sit in rows. The bell tells you when 
your shift begins, when you're on break, when the break ends, right? And you have somebody in the front who's a foreman kind of telling you what to do, and that's it. Well, we have to kind of change that. You know, right now when when we are we are living in a world where we, you know, the industrial age in a sense is dead. And now is the age of artificial intelligence and and you know advanced technology. Oh, go ahead. What were you saying? Right. I, I was going to say I mention this all the time in in anthropology. We we talk about the three major shifts in human culture. Right. We have. The agricultural revolution is when people went from nomadic to sedentary. We have the, um, my mind's going blank, but we have, there was a second one. And then the third one was the industrial revolution. And then the printing press, now I, the, yeah, right. Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. The printing press was a huge revolution because the ideas of, you know, ideas were able to be spread far and wide much easier Then we had the agricultural revolution than the printing press. And then now we're in this technological revolution. Um, you know, it's not even fully dated yet because we're still so new into it. But I saw even on your website that you talked about the idea of implementing policies for this type of fast paced changing world of tech. And I think that is so important because if left to its own devices, AI will take over every job there is i mean there's uh, what will be left for humans because even just yesterday you know i've been i've been researching health and fitness for well over like a decade and and i love it i, I love researching it and fitness and all that and you know i can create you know a workout plan but i asked chat gpt to write me a workout plan you know a five-day workout plan i put all these parameters of what i'm looking for what i want and not even in perfect English, I'm just like, oh yeah, make sure it has this. Oh, and I include this. And it just like, you know, as if you're talking to an assistant or somebody and I just put it all down and within 30 seconds, it wrote me a stellar workout plan, which my mind quickly went to, wow, I could only imagine if I was a personal trainer right now, I would be very nervous. And not just personal trainer, you could do that for a nutrition plan. And it, you know, this could be spread across any profession. So- a coder. I mean, you take Coder, a look at what happened coding. with Microsoft. Microsoft is a prime example of it. Microsoft fires 10,000 people while simultaneously injecting $10 billion into ChatGPT, right? So 10,000 times $100,000 salary per year yeah. is $10 billion. So effectively, the way I see it is Microsoft sees the value of ChatGPT as being having the same amount of value of 10,000 people. And that to me is a very you know, interesting prospect. Whereas some people might be, well, that's a scary prospect. I am a fan of change. I think, you know, look, being sedentary is death. If there's one thing that you might appreciate as an anthropologist is whenever somebody gets too comfortable, they get wiped out, right? We've seen it. <laughs> now, the, the, the kingdoms of Ur and, uh, and, and Acadia are long gone, like Percy Bysshe's, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley's poem, you know, Ozymandias. The king mm -hmm. of kings, you know, look at my face. You know, the same kind of concept. We must move. We must move and we must evolve and we must adapt. And I think that there is a fundamental lack of understanding even what the problem is currently in politics. You know, you have a group of politicians. Now, look, I, I challenge 
or any one of them to tell you the difference between a Y and a Delta transform. Right? So if you can't even tell the difference between a Y and a Delta transform, what are you doing talking about the grid and grid reliability? You know, if you don't even understand, that's like me talking about, uh, you know, the problems of an F1 pilot. Well, the chicane right. is going to give you a lot of trouble. <laughs> really? Mm -hmm. Okay. Hey. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the dude. Right. On, it, I, yeah. I've always wondered that is, you know, why do we have people in place that speak about things that they don't know much about? Right. Money. We should often have money. Right. I mean, we should have ideally experts speaking on these types of topics and giving their professional opinion sometimes as well. Well, I, I, I think the word expert is 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 a bit um, different to the system because you know if you read Article One of the Constitution, it clearly delineates that there's only two requirements to be in Congress, and and that's why if there's anything somebody can take from this podcast, it's this: look, if you think you have a good idea, it's time to become invested. It's time mm -hmm. to run. It's time to get a clipboard. Time to get out there because the only two requirements is that you have to be at least 25 years old and a citizen for at least seven years doesn't say that you have to go to Harvard and graduate magna cum laude and then be, you know, <laughs> be a Rhodes Scholar and do this and do In fact, it's quite the opposite. I think the framers of the Constitution wanted younger people with innovative ideas to come in, which is why Congress has the most amount of power of the three respective branches, but it's also the shortest amount of time. You know, it Is says, there a financial burden, though? Extreme financial burden. And this is, this is one of the barriers of entry that mm. I, you know, I, not only have I learn, but also there are ways to overcome it. So think of it this way. The average congressional campaign costs about a million dollars. And this Gosh. million dollars, right? This million dollars is not tax deductible. So when somebody makes a, contri a contribution to my campaign, that's something you write off on your taxes. Right. Okay. And so, at, 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 so in a sense, what do you do, right? How does average Joe Schmo get into a position where they can even say, hey, I'm running for Congress. Well, step one, get a clipboard. <laughs> get a clipboard. <laughs> like, I, you, you know, I, I think that the biggest walls that we build are the ones in our mind that say that we can't do it, right? Get a clipboard. Number two, right. start talking to people. Number three, read the actual rules by the Secretary of State. This is when the filing dates are. This is what you need to do. Number three, register with the FEC. Say that you're forming a committee. Your committee, right. you're going to need a uh, treasurer, and you're going to need, you know, it's not necessary to have somebody who's a GC or someone in those lines, but it helps to have somebody who can help guide you along. Your initial mm -hmm. startup costs, something like about $1,000, right? Between $500 to $1,000. After that point, you figure out if you're lucky enough, you get a, you get a fundraiser, somebody who can help connect you truly with people who are uh, financially invested uh, in politics. You call your friends and families. You uh, put some of your own capital and, and your own resources into running. And you have the discipline. Get up in the morning. Right. Oh, go ahead. Well, also, my mind goes to the idea, right, where, especially in previous elections and campaigns, we see that ultimately the money goes towards ads and marketing 100%. and trying to share ideas and yes. getting your voice and then your face and your name out there. But what an idea that is very interesting to me that came up is 
the future of where this is headed, right? Especially for younger people that may have that financial burden to overcome is what if social media was the leverage instead of money for younger people, right? So imagine someone has a following of 10 million people and they're a fairly young person. They could also leverage that as their platform of voice for politics or whatever they're getting into business, right? So my mind almost goes to that direction where ultimately the money is being used to reach people. But for young people, I guess an alternative to having money would also be having an audience already. that in of itself is already happening today. Hollywood is Mm -hmm. casting people based on the number of followers they have. Um, You know, there are agencies in Hollywood that uh, will charge, you know, $10,000 for a tweet. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. a little little known secret. And and don't think it's any different (laughs) for politics. You know, there Mm -hmm. are definitely people who amplify messages. There are people who utilize their platforms. You know, some of the largest names that you can think about in politics are actual paid accounts that are there just to attract followers and this and that. But everything, if there's a way to monetize it, this is one of the great things about the United States. Hey, I love it. I, I love capitalism in the sense that, you know, if there's an opportunity to create and grow, capitalism, whether it exploits greed, whether it exploits, you know, some kind of a desire for innovation, will we'll t- we'll allow, will we'll create an ecosystem where that can happen. But I also believe that the power of the United States is at a point which we've never seen before in human history. You know, a single B-2 spirit, and the B-2 has been replaced by the B-21, but I'll give you an example of the B-2. Tiny radar cross-signature and can deliver its payload and be on its way back to Alabama uh, and land before the payload even hits. Okay. Mm. We have 21 carriers out of which 11 are super carriers, you know, each one with 70 plus airplanes. We have F-22 stealth, F-22 fighters. We have nuclear, ballistic nuclear missiles. I mean, we are the most powerful thing on earth. And the only thing protecting the earth from the United States is the people. And when you have a government that is not afraid of the people anymore, when you have a government that has suddenly decided that it doesn't derive its power from the people, but that the people derive its power from the government, that is an extremely dangerous thing. That is very dangerous. What we saw during COVID, okay, I'll, I'll open the can of worms, the uncomfortable topic. <laughs> you know, because I was an essential worker during COVID. Uh, I was in Richland, Washington, where the second uh, case of COVID hit in the entire country. That night, my hotel filled up with NIH personnel. And while entire towns were shut down, while, while the whole country was shut down, I was flying around all over the country because, you know, these government projects don't stop. I'll just put it like that. And I remember I had this severe panic attack. I was on a, I was on a jet and I was the only passenger on the jet. And I thought to myself, my God, is this ever going to end? I was flying into Dulles, Washington, Dulles, and it was a ghost. Mm-hmm. And when you get on these sites, hey, it's fine. You know, work the entire time. You know, how many nurses, how many doctors, how many firemen, how many police officers have to work through all that stuff, not knowing if you're, and every day, you know, you were, you were thinking, okay, if I'm exposed to this, I'm going to hurt everybody I know, I probably will. And I ended up getting it in the uh, first wave and almost killed, right? Just for the government to turn around and say, well, guess what? You know, and there were people who refused to 
get vaccinated or this and that, and suddenly they found themselves in jeopardy. Suddenly they became enemy number one. People who didn't wear masks, right? In California, you know, if you were caught in the street without a mask, you would get in serious trouble, right? You know, which I, I'm saying the, the amount of leeway and gaslighting that people had to endure over the last couple of years was a level of insanity that I don't want anybody to have to go through again. You know, even by sharing, right. hey, the, it might have leaked out of a lab. You were banned from ecosystems, right? And so, in a sense, going back to this whole Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Well, actually, I want to add on to what you're saying real quick, right? Yeah. And I often encourage the audience and listeners to think independently sometimes, right? And and I understand, right, when the the thing when the pandemic happened, everyone's freaking out. Many people have never experienced something like this before. They weren't prepared mentally, um, things like that nature. But, you know, by 2021, you start looking around and you start questioning what is really going on here? Because I was on flights back, you know, semi back to normal society and I was on a flight and, you know, they're very strict about keeping your mask on when you're entering, when you're on the flight. But when they give you some pretzels you can take off. And, a, and, a, and a Sprite or whatever you want, then everybody takes off their mask for 15 minutes, even though you're in a pressurized cabin. Right. And then you have to put it back on as if that 10 minutes was, you know, you're, you're immune for 10 minutes and nothing can happen to anybody or yourself. And then you got to put it back. I don't know. It just, it starts to make you wonder like, you know, really what is going on here because it didn't add up. Well, I, I, I understand, you know, both points of view in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, before the pandemic, and I call it the pandemic because uh, I say before the lockdowns began, you know, I, I was aware of yeah, something yeah. coming out of China. I'd heard about it from people. You know, I keep my, and uh, I said, hey, look, something's coming. I don't know what it is, but, I, you know, I, this is back when I had Facebook and I put it out and I said, look, just practice common decency, wash your hands. If you're coughing, wear a mask. So, you don't, you know, it, we don't know what this thing is. Be kind to the elderly. I got pilloried by the say, saying, by people saying, how dare you tell us to wear a mask, this and that. This, you know, I have a condition and I can't, the same people who six months later were yelling at people because they said cloth masks were ineffective. They said, how dare you? Who do you think you're? So the, <laughs> it was interesting to see the conversion of people from one side extreme to the other right. side, because I think it, it, the government had a chance to seize an enormous amount of power and truly get away with a lot of stuff that would have never flown before. And I think as a consequence, people lost a lot of hope. People realized that they were powerless. They were just, you know, cogs in a machine and people stopped dreaming. Right. We saw so many businesses uh, get destroyed. Uh, we, right. And there's a lot of anger. Also, you know, also, you know, I wanted to add, I'm sure as you remember and uh, often probably even experienced as an immigrant, the immigrant mindset of picking your battles. Yes. I think we, we learned that very well coming to the U.S. is, you know, because let's say somebody says something racist to me, you know, I have to assess the situation. Is it worth picking this battle? And oftentimes as in, you know, growing up in the United States as an immigrant, you start to really analyze, is this battle worth picking? And, and going back to the mask thing, you know, it's, it wasn't the end of the world, so we wouldn't pick those battles oftentimes. We just 
comply and then but i do think regardless it's important to question and yes and not to not to lose not to lose our humanity because that was the thing about covid to me the the worst part of the virus wasn't the virus itself wasn't the wasn't the infection it was the infection to society it was how it brought the worst out in people it was how you had a group of people um and you know say it i mean look majority of the people uh, who identified as being on the left were actively calling for those who weren't vaccinated uh, to not get medical service, to be rejected from society. I mean, to not be allowed to go to grocery stores because there was such an, an aura of fear that was created around people without understanding. And rightfully so, there's anger to it. You know, when it comes to our community, you know, the, the immigrant experience, you know, this was another thing. I didn't, as... I didn't see people sticking up for our rights either. No, mm -hmm. I didn't see people standing up when that little when that little kid was bullied and outside of Dallas. Remember that there was that mm -hmm. kid who was bullied and there was videotape. There's nobody shouting for his rights. We're we're just told, oh, be quiet, be quiet. It'll pass on. You know, right. we, there was nobody who stuck up for us. I remember after 9-11, I was in the Navy. Right. And I remember right. I, I went to high school in New York City, a block away from the towers. And I remember when all those Sikhs were targeted. There was a guy in California who was shot for wearing a turban. There were all these people who were beat up, assaulted for wearing turbans and this and that. And there were Sikhs. Okay. Mm -hmm. There was nobody. I remember that, that, that grandfather who was pushed down by the police because he didn't understand English. And the police thought he was a robber. He was a 60, 70, 72 year old, you know, grandpa wearing the dhoti, walking around in the neighborhood <laughs> and they paralyzed right. him. There wasn't a single call to action in our community. And so I wanted to, I wanted to also create a voice for us where, you know, we are not powerless, where if I can do it and look, I, I encourage people to disagree with my ideas because disagree with my idea and run, run for office. If I can inspire one person to be like, you know what, that guy's, that guy's smart or that guy's stupid, whatever, I can do a better job, man, wouldn't that be amazing? We need younger people to get in. Congress has an age. An average age, I think it was like 58 or 60, something like that. For Senate, it's like 68 or 70. You have a president right now who, if he wins, he'll be 80, <laughs> 90 years old, 90. You have another guy Gosh. who might win, you know, yeah. part of Trump, who, who might be in his 80s. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't care who you vote for. Ultimately, it's your choice. But if we are forcing retirement on people when they're 66, right, what are we doing giving the nuclear codes to people? You know, if we aren't taking a vested interest in our government, if we aren't the ones creating the future that we want, regardless if some people agree with you, some people disagree with you, whatever it is, if you think you have a good idea, the beauty of America is that we get to create it. And as opposed to, as opposed to harnessing that power, as opposed to figuring out a way to create joy for other people around us and realizing, hey, it's kind of like jury duty. You know, you shouldn't have people who are <laughs> in there 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. You should be going in there, getting a couple ideas, getting out so you can give somebody else a chance, right? Making this world a little bit better and getting on, moving on with your day. Instead, we are, it is, COVID showed me one thing. People find it way easier to be told what to do and to follow than to actually figure out what to do, what's best for themselves and their communities. It reminds me with what you're saying, reminds me with the saying, old ideas don't die, people do. Right. And for society to evolve, you have to have new, fresh ideas. 
enter the the discussion and and it seems like they're almost gatekeeping in a way because it's you know to hold on to their seat of power is often what I've noticed but why is it do you think that younger people are not interested in politics or you know because if you look at the numbers it's often younger people are also not as involved in politics why do you think that is am i allowed to say i don't know i i, I don't know <laughs> of uh, course um, yes yes <laughs> but, but I'll, I'll hazard a guess i i, I think mm-hmm. it's i think it's because when you're worried about paying your rent when you're worried about you know how do i work a job and go to school if you're worried about hey um my electricity bill is going to get cut off or oh my gosh uh i'm dealing with a life-threatening condition how do i pay for my medical bills once again it goes back to the maslow's hierarchy it needs to be i mean i know it's reductive but yeah you can't think i wasn't able i can't say other people i wasn't able to think outside of myself until i got to a position where i had my baselines covered until yeah, i was true. able to buy a house and you know have a have a stable relationship and be proud of who I am and get to a point where I started looking at my gifts as opposed to my imperfections. How, how could I even get out of my own head? How could I even get mm. out of my own way? And what I'm right. Let alone I, think about the projection of the country and where it's know? headed. But mm-hmm. that makes sense. That doesn't mean that we can't think beyond that. You know, uh, winning jeopardy taught me something. You know, I appeared on the last episode with Alex Trebek and I never expected to go viral. I, I thought, you know, there, there was an answer I gave about a cheesesteak. And luckily, John's Roast Pork in Philadelphia sent me some cheesesteaks. Thanks, John, if you, if you listen to me. <laughs> I had no idea that people would latch on to that story and how it reminded people of their own experiences and how it reminded people of family. You know, I don't want, you want to talk about bearing your soul. That was that was me bearing my soul to people. But I had You showed no the option. human experience. Yeah. And I, and, mm-hmm. and I had to, I had to choose, you know, I had to choose whether or not to tell people the reality of it, you know, good and bad, or to mm-hmm. sugarcoat some fairyland nonsense. I chose to be very truthful because I said, okay, what's the harm? You know, people are all, people will forget about it. People will care. Some people, but maybe I can spread a little bit of positivity. And so I wrote an op-ed that CNN published on, uh, on January 7th, the day after that, uh, you know, that, that riot at the Capitol, um, that basically we're all in this together. That the, literally the greatest miracle I know is that we are on the outer hull of a spaceship hurtling through the cosmos and a single rock could wipe us all out. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty sober so realization. I think I literally had that thought the other day. <laughs> it's true though. True. You know, we, yeah. we, like we have to learn to get along and we have to learn you know, not in some Rodney King, like, I can't we all just get along. No, I mean, truly, like, hey, we got to put our brains <laughs> together and figure out solutions for a lot of different things. You know, whether that is energy independence, whether that is figuring out, you know, but we can't, we can't dream that big until we start solving societal issues at a baseline. You know, I, part of the reason why I identify as a Republican is because our, the Republican Party was founded in 1854 by Abraham Lincoln and Horace Greeley to fight slavery, okay? Anytime you have to think about an organization, look back at the mission document. <laughs> what is the mission statement? It's to fight slavery. Right. And what I see now is modern-day slavery. You know, I call it the Uber trap. 
you drive Uber, you make $700 a week, right? That's $2,800 a month, maybe $3,000 if you're lucky, right? By the time you're done with taxes, you're left with two grand. Your apartment, because you're sharing it with one or two roommates, it still costs $800, $900, right? You have your car mm -hmm. payment, you have your gas, you have your expenses, you have, you know, once you go out, you have a couple of beers with friends, what are you left with? $100, maybe $50 a month, you're living paycheck to paycheck. Before you know it, a couple of years have gone by. You know, what if you get your girlfriend pregnant? Or, you know, whatever, you and your significant other start a family. Now, what do you do? How do you, how do you translate your job uh, into something that makes more money? How many side hustles does somebody have in life? Now, are you effectively going to be an automaton? And so this is, and it goes back to the, this book ends perfectly to what we were talking about in the beginning, which is the concept of hope. You know, the, the, right now, Americans aren't feeling, at least my generation or younger, aren't necessarily having the same sense of hope that I had as an immigrant when I first came to the United States. And it's because, not that the American dream is dead, it's that Americans aren't able to dream because they're too anxious to go to sleep. Your basic right. needs aren't being taken care of. We have a politician, you know, like the current politician here, thanks Keith Self. Look, the guy, I'm not saying... You know, he's a good guy or a bad guy. That's irrelevant. I'm talking about him as a congressman. No, I wasn't elected in the popular election. He gets in there because Van Taylor ends up resigning post-primary. He's a local, you know, establishment guy, local judge, gets in. Okay, but what's he doing? He's having lunch with Vladimir Zelensky saying that the biggest threat to us is this war in Ukraine. <laughs> that he votes for troops in Syria. He votes for troops to, to be in the Sudan. You know, he cuts veterans' rights. <laughs> Like, dude, right, yeah. how, how many, like, how many, how many, I could list like 80 problems that we should be focusing on <laughs> before worrying about the Ukraine. I could think of 80 things to cut before we cut benefits for the veterans. You know, that's all I'm saying. That's, you know, we have. That's so true. So many people are focused on surviving. You know, my dad said this and it stuck with me so well. He said, people work their whole life to make a ton of money only to give it back to the doctors and hospitals. And that's so true. Like if you look at some of these surgeries, man, they're 150 K for a heart surgery and then hundreds of thousands for different surgeries. And these numbers are insane. Completely Almost, insane. They will, they will literally wipe out your pockets even if you spent years saving them up. So it's, it, it these basic needs are not being fulfilled. And, and that's why I think many people are, you know, losing hope and are stuck in their own worlds and it's harder to come together and think of bigger pictures because we're all struggling to survive in this socially constructed system that we've made, right? Like going back to the idea of Kenya, those people are surviving too, but they look very happy. The children, I had never seen a happier group of children in my entire life than these kids that were super skinny some of them, they they often all had raggedy clothes and holes in their shirts, and they were just happy to live another day. Because love, and yeah, because love, love is something, love is something that first comes from love of self. You know, I, I think we are, we we forget so much in our society because of the societal pressures that love comes from within. Love comes from being able to look in a mirror and say, "Wow." I am. I have gifts, and I that I can offer. I have light. 
And we, we are so, we have been taught by society. We have been taught by social media. We've been taught by influencers, taught by fake ass people to do the following. <laughs> it's to build walls to protect our light. When the reality is it doesn't take anything to reach over and metaphorically light somebody else's wick, you know, with your candle flame, your light doesn't go out. If anything that spreads, that vibration spreads in the universe. And yeah, right. strong gust of wind might come and blow yours out and snuff it out. Maybe somebody will light it, but who cares? You know, the, the fundamental, right. the fundamental truth is this, that we don't know a damn thing. We are fumbling around in this existence, trying to create something better than we had it yesterday. You know, that is quintessentially what hope is. And we live in a country which is so evolved that a squirrel has rights. You know, if you were to take a squirrel and microwave it and live stream it, <laughs> you, would, you would be beat up by every, including me, you would be beat up by everyone. <laughs> You'd get beat up in jail. Poor little squirrel. Yeah. That'd be like a ribbon that the NFL wears in memory of the squirrel. The squirrel has rights. It is worth protecting. Women have rights. People who love whomever, they have rights, right? right? And so what is failing? Why is there so much division? Well, it's because the political parties realized, hey, if we make it a moral war of good versus evil, if we say, hey, the problem is not with the politician, it's with the people who support the politician, that's how we get you. And yeah, right. you know what? I'm unabashedly a conservative. Okay, do I believe in the Second Amendment? Absolutely, because there's a fundamental argument for me to be made that the Second Amendment is the reason why all the other amendments exist. You know, okay, do I do, do I believe that uh, we should be uh, spending money here, uh, for example, as opposed to Congress deciding over one weekend to send, you know, what was it? I think $25 billion to Ukraine in one weekend. You know, would it be a better use of Congress's time if over one weekend they allocated $14 billion to the USDA so every single child in school could eat for free? Yeah. So on the one hand, am I... <laughs> Am I a bad person for saying, hey, I like having my guns, but at the same time, I want little kids to eat? Does that make me a worse person than the person who says, oh, we should ban all guns, but also we should send all the guns to Ukraine <laughs> instead of feeding <laughs> kids? This is the dichotomy that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is this, like ultimately, ultimately, the majority of the legislation that Congress should be passing, the 80% that I'm talking about should be agnostic of Republican or Democrat. They should be geared towards American growth. We should have free trade. We should have competition in the market. We should allow for small businesses to take out loans. Right now, if you're a small business and you walk into a bank, good luck getting a loan for $250,000. You know, I spoke to so many business, I spoke to this business was talking about, hey, I need a CNC machine that so we can make precision parts. We have an invoice in hand ready to go. It will create eight jobs and bring my company money. Local banks said, no, it's too risky. They would rather give out a loan for $10 million than they would for a $250,000 because it's less risky. I'm saying, right. what kind of a society have we become where we are so bogged down by regulation that this is the end result? Occupy Wall Street, perfect example. You know, Occupy Wall Street came about because Wall Street was getting bailouts, corporations were getting bailouts before the end user, before the customer at the end. And what, is, what does Wall Street do? They realize, well, you know, if we put a rainbow flag and we have a diversity month, we can now become the arbiters of equity. Right. I mean, it's the greatest hoodwink I've seen in my generation. And 
that is, I, I believe people are losing hope because they feel they cannot change the system. And so we are looking at people, we're looking, we're looking at everybody who speaks a voice and we're using words like ally and all this nonsense when people really don't care about you, when people are really getting up there and they're doing it for their own fame, for the most part, they're, they're truly, I think, their vested interests are towards their donors, their vested interests are towards staying in power, and their vested interest is towards enforcing their will on people. And my fundamental belief is that the way that the government of the United States is set up is not to tell people what to do, but it's to create options so people have freedom to choose what they want to do. That's mm -hmm. it. And I encourage literally everybody, including you, man, you see something. If you see an opportunity to, you know, what's there? Whether it's for city count, whether it's for dog catcher, I don't care. If you feel like you can optimize a system better than somebody currently occupying it, don't let them tell you. Because you know what? What when I went to a dinner, I had a precinct chair tell me, "Who do I think I am, wanting to run for Congress?" These were his exact words. "Who do you think you are? You're selfish. You know mm -hmm. the guy hasn't even been in there yet. Who do you think you are? How dare you? Literally use those words." Now me. I'm 25 years old, at least, and I've been a citizen for at least seven years. That's how I date. <laughs> and that's what you do, you know? And mm -hmm. ultimately, going back to this, we live our life, 60% of it, living somebody else's dreams. Those people that you spent time with in Kenya were spending virtually 100% of their life living their dreams. They went where the sun took them, where the water took them, where the animals took them. They lived in a flow, in a state of flow that cannot be replicated in modern society because the very contracts that we sign with society is that we give up our basic freedoms. We give up our right for independence, for the safety of interdependence. And as a consequence, we yield, we yield, we yield. But if you yield too much, you're nothing more than a slave. Right. You know, it. my mind goes back to the idea of we were talking about civil discourse, and it's incredibly unfortunate that we don't have the freedom to express our opinions, right? Simple example, I posted once a video of Jordan Peterson talking about something regarding society. It wasn't even political, but due to his political affiliations, people immediately were triggered by just the mere fact that I posted anything of him at all and pigeonholed me into, you know, this is what you believe. And it, it was a very eye opening moment because, you know, I'd have to say my political philosophy has never been about picking a side. I understand from your perspective why you would need to pick a side. Oh, in I'm in the most run. polarizing office, yeah. partisan office. I have yeah, to. Especially because I think what third party, third parties never, never make it. So I understand that. But from a voter's perspective, I actually do think it's better to, to even have, you know, the ability to vote based on the person rather than the party, because then you're really voting based on ideologies rather than a loyalty to one side. It it reminds me of this psychology I the psychology experiment. Um, so you know how companies pay a lot of money to understand human psychology and and how to get people to buy their products. And I saw something that was so interesting, right? So there was this 
So if you look at fast food places and restaurants and you wonder, you know, why are there so many restaurants right, right next to each other? You, you would think it's counterintuitive, right? So let's say you have a McDonald's and let's say McDonald's gets 100 sales a day at this location. And I think intuitively we would assume if a Burger King opened right next to it, you would lose 50% of the sales approximately, right? You'd have 50-50. But apparently the psychology is both stores increase in sales, which is very interesting to think about because the psychology here is a person goes from thinking when there's only a McDonald's, do I want McDonald's today or not? Versus when there's Burger King and McDonald's next to each other, the question that the person frames in their head is no longer do I want it or not, it's which so I want one Burger do King I or want. McDonald's. Um, they almost don't even consider that the other option is neither, right? It's it's the the way the question is now framed just by the mere fact that there is exposure to multiple options, you forget the option of neither. So just like that, I think that can even be applicable to a party, right? You think of one side versus the other. And when in reality, you could also just pick a person based on, you know, their meritocracy, their values. Do they really care about it and what they're saying, their word, or, you know, are they just trying to get reelected, things like that? Absolutely. And and I, and I think that that is bringing up something pretty significant um, in my thought process as well, which is we're effectively in a cacistocracy at this point. Cacistocracy, ruled by the stupid, ruled by the bad, call it whatever you want, because we are left with these artificial binary choices. People aren't paying attention in the parts right. where it matter, where it matters, right. the primaries, right? You're just saying, oh, okay, this is the guy who's in office, so this way we'll keep going. Take a look at Joe Biden. I mean, this guy literally has been in office since 1978. You know, he was a senator. He used to be called the senator from MBNA, which is he was so intimately tied in with MBNA Bank. Um, mm -hmm. and did a lot of shady things with Delaware, you know, and a lot of shady things. His son, Hunter Biden, ends up getting discharged from the military because of drug, you know, because of, of drugs. And, you know, in, order, in an effort to, to, to get his discharge status improved, he gets an internship at MBNA where he's effectively an executive. And mm -hmm. has to check in every day for a year with somebody affirming, hey, he didn't do any drugs, et cetera. I mean, this guy voted for the crime bill. He voted for such extensive crack uh, sentencing guidelines that majority of the majority of uh, the the regressive policing that you saw against the black community was directly responsible for some of the bills that he was advocating. This is a guy who voted for you know severe penalties for for people to. Uh, you know, anytime they were sentenced with drugs, enhancements for crimes. I mean, you want to talk about somebody who was the definition of what he's crying out uh, against the other side being, I mean, this guy was it. And so now he's running as Grandpa Joe, basically, oh, I'm this happy guy. And if, you know, you don't vote for me, you ain't black. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> how, how, like, how fickle is the public's mindset? And this is the best that the party offers. You see what I'm saying? And conversely, I'm sure people will say the same thing about Donald Trump or they'll say the same. But the fact is, goes back to this. We have to get these people who've been in power 30 years, 40 years. Look, if you're in government for 15, 20, 30, 40 years, regardless if you're a mayor or city councilman and then you move up and then, you know, Bernie Sanders is another example. The guy has been, that hasn't, dude, the guy's been a professional panhandler since he was 24. 
mean, he's literally, <laughs> and, and I'll say the same thing about some of the people on the right. I mean, these people literally have been in power longer than we have been alive. Okay. Mm. And what is the difference between an Earl and a Duke at that point? And if they picked from their class to see who becomes president, what is the difference between a king? I mean, the effectively what we have today is the manager class and the managers select their director from their group of managers. Is that I mean, I don't know how much more un-American I can make that sound. That is the reality. Yeah, this literally reminds me of our first conversation when we met uh, outside the gym, if you if you recall, I had mentioned the phrase that it reminds me of the phrase from the Batman movie, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And we were referencing that to the idea of staying in power for yes. so long. Yes. It almost becomes a thing where you need to do anything to continue staying in power. And that's that becomes the new agenda rather than ideas being spread and shared. There are millions of people who are incarcerated behind behind the bars for the rest of their life. And the key word there is life, right? If the human mind and the body can't adapt or overcome, there'd be suicides in mass, right? Now, I'm not saying it right. is a pleasurable existence, but if they can do it, why can't we, you take the next step to do whatever you want to do? And this is this goes back to my fundamental tenet is... Knowing yourself comes first from, I think, you know, like I'll, I'll share something personal. Uh, a couple of years ago, what was it, 20, 2015, I had a can of beans and a can of tuna for Christmas. And I couldn't find $7 in change to get a Little Caesars pizza. It was so specific. I wanted a Little Caesars pizza <laughs> and I wanted a pig cup with the diet. <laughs> and I, I couldn't find the $7 of change to get mm -hmm. it. I mean, that's how broke I was. And I had that kind of ugly cry. You know the one with snot bubbles or like the burst, the snot bubble burst? Yeah, it's graphic. I don't care. Right. I'm unashamed, right? And I couldn't find it. Once I got done feeling sorry for myself and whatever, I mean, you want to talk about rock bottom. I had a Bible next to me. I threw it up against the wall. The verse that opened up, I'll never forget it. It was, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but don't have love, I'm but a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I realized that in there, Man, the only, the biggest liar I knew in the world was me because I had been saying yes to everyone and yes to everything because I didn't want to disappoint them. And as a consequence, my standards in life just decreased down the drain because I wasn't honest with myself. I didn't love myself. When I looked in the mirror, all I saw were flaws. All I saw was this person that I didn't want to be. And here I was being that, being that person, being that, that thing that I despised, you know? And the right. instant I started raising my standards, the instant I started being grateful for the few things I had in my life back then. But yeah, was it a lie? Was it a lie when I was in my head? When I was like, oh yeah, I'm so grateful for the trillions of cells I have in my <laughs> body. And I'm grateful for my beat up car. And I'm, did it feel like it was a lie? Yeah. But was I grateful? Was there a part of me that absolutely was? Absolutely. And when I started realizing that how little I actually needed to live, it's kind of like Seneca. You know, a man should at least once in his life see how little he needs to live so he could, you know, you know that quote. Yeah. And it's kind of like that. There is, maybe there's a bit of truth in stoicism. Who knows? You know, a lot of people might have been enlightened by it. But uh, 
But once I started truly being grateful for, for what I was, once I started being grateful for the things that I already had, you know, once I started realizing that the material things in life weren't going to, you know, fill a void in my heart or whatever it was, once I realized that in order for me to love somebody else, I had to learn to love myself, I stopped living for other people's dreams and I started living for my own. You know, it, it, takes, it takes some courage to run for government. It takes some courage to start a podcast. It takes some courage to step into a gym when you're overweight and do your first curl when you're all your eyes on you. It takes courage to step foot on the first day of school and say hello to somebody. It takes courage to take a knife and dart it across someone's body and see that wake of red when it's your first surgery. Man, it takes courage to go to space. It takes everything in life. It takes courage to take your first breath when you're out of the womb. I don't remember it, but I guarantee it. It took some courage to do that. What do we have to be afraid of? Death? Well, it's gonna. I'll let you in on a little secret. All of us are going to die. What do we have to be afraid <laughs> no. of? No. <laughs> I often think, you know, the catalyst to, to what you're saying, this is the thought that I often have is, Either way, life is hard for one of two reasons. You're either, you know, trying something new or you stay in your status quo and eventually life catches up to you and you live with regrets. And that idea of regret is what fuels me to go ahead and try it anyways, right? This this idea of when I first started the podcast, it was, man, I, I don't even know how long I sat there staring at the publish button. I didn't, I sat there maybe for an hour before I pressed publish. It was it was so scary. I, I, it almost felt like, oh my God, what, what are people going to say? What are people going to think? Everybody's going to look at me. And, you know, you have to take that leap of faith in yourself and it's self-love. And that journey of self-love, which you mentioned, it was so difficult because growing up, I also was someone who always in that giver mindset, um, maybe even to the point of people pleasing and to take a step back and realize, you know, the one person I wasn't loving enough was myself was a very profoundly difficult journey to, to, you know, work on. Absolutely, man. And, and, you know, we're all, I think, figuring it out. And uh, ultimately, mm -hmm. ultimately that's the beauty of our journey is that we have to figure it out and either either we can do it with a state of joy or we can sit sedentary in our room or we could do it from a state of fear but as long as we do it that's right. the key it's action you know right that's it so you know i wanted to ask you this because you you know you actually touched upon it something i was thinking about the other day for this interview was you know for example Starting this podcast, you become a target on media. Starting or you know, running for Congress, you become a target to people. And even uh, just today, I was going through your Twitter, just checking out some of your, you know, your content and whatnot. And and you know, there's always haters everywhere. And it leads me to ask you, you know, especially I'm sure you were aware of this even before you started, because politics can get pretty nasty. Is you know coming to terms with the fact that there is going to be shade, you know, people are going to throw shade, there is going to be hate. Um, how did you recollect and deal with that? 
I wish I could tell you that uh, that uh, oh, it just bounces off you like water off a duck's back. <laughs> no, man. I mean, people say mean things, and sometimes it gets yeah. to you. Other times, you just laugh it off. And, you know, I, I remember the first time I got some hate, I was like, <gasps> <laughs> you know. The second time, it wasn't as pronounced. The third time, they had it easier. The fourth time, you just ignore it. Every now and then, I'll engage someone. You know, if, if somebody. You know, I'll never forget there was an interaction I had with someone who, you know, basically said something very vile. And I went on her Twitter page. I didn't want to make it public, but, you know, I just wanted to understand, like, hey, why is this person assuming an untruth about me? You know, mm. um, and I went on her page and then I realized, uh, you know, her son was was killed in Afghanistan in an IED and she was very angry. And so I just, you know, I sent her a message and I said, ma'am, I, I, politics aside, you know, I'm just, I'm so sorry for the loss of your son. I want you to know that I'm very anti-war and we might disagree on a lot of things, but you know, this is one thing that I promise you, no matter what, I'll never change. And you know, she's, she just said, thank you so much. That was it. That was the interaction. And I, I think, I think people, at least on social media, they're trolls absolutely but i think the majority of people who are who are genuinely were genuinely you know engaging to either to try to elicit a response either are coming from a position where they feel like they're not being heard or mm. they are coming from a position where they're afraid that if you get in a position where your voice is amplified theirs will be snuffed out and and this is why i think it is so important to not have an echo chamber that's why I say it's easier for people to have an echo chamber because you don't need to listen to the dissenting voices. You know, mm. I, I, are there... We call them keyboard warriors. Keyboard warriors for sure. But, <laughs> you, know, you know, but 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 some people though, some people sense, though, yeah. you know, the, at least on Facebook where you could have larger discussions with people. You know, sometimes you get in long, drawn out arguments with people philosophically. And I think it's good to be challenged on your viewpoints. You know, not, mm. I, I'm sure there are things that I've said that you've agreed with and other things that you disagree with or you're, you know, you're reticent about talking about. But at the same time, we can have a discourse about it. We can have, you know, we can have an environment where we say, okay, I agree with you on this point. On this point, I disagree with you. And because we live in an intellectual society, you can say, look, here's why I disagree with you. And this is why I think maybe you should take a look at X, Y, and Z viewpoint. And right. I think social media is giving people power in a society where power has been, where power has been taken away from them. This is the Uber trap I'm talking about where the hope is gone away. You know, when people are experiencing censorship on such a mass scale, you know, you take a look at, Okay, we'll use Donald Trump as an example, you know, election interference, right? There's no definitive proof that there was election interference, right? But every attempt at bringing up said election interference was either kicked out because of technicalities or it was heavily shut down immediately, you know? And quite frankly, we're finding out, hey, look, the social, social media companies were heavily, heavily, heavily promoting... Yeah anti-Trump agendas and ideas and silencing voices that were pro-Trump. You know, they were being kicked off right. of platforms. They were being deplatformed for whatever little nonsense you could talk about. You take a look at the Hunter Biden. And then on top of that, the algorithm also only, Absolutely. it's like the echo chamber. It pushes exactly what you need and what you want to see. 
And I think that's also just as dangerous. Just as dangerous. And so when, when you have a group of people who weren't a, allowed to freely interact and freely discourse, right? When you have college campuses where dissenting thought is shut down, right? Uh, you know, you, you bring up Jordan Peterson. Uh, I'm bringing up, uh, how about that woman who spoke up against uh, that, that Leah Thomas swimmer, you know, and she was, mm. she was physically attacked on a site because people cannot handle the idea that somebody would speak up and have a difference of thought. Look, at the end of the day, I'll never forget, uh, there was a class I took in high school, in high school of all places, where, <laughs> where we had, uh, when we were discussing the Holocaust, you know, they, uh, a lady who had a, I'll never forget, she had a tattoo, and she spoke about her experiences in the concentration camp. And those of us who grew up in New York in the 90s, we all know somebody Jewish who had a tattoo or was in a concentration camp. Most of us, can't say all. But then she also brought up a Holocaust denier the following day to give us a different perspective. Right. So think about that. If we as high school students can be entrusted, have that kind of critical thinking to, to, to basically point out the absurdity, you know, of one idea versus the humanity of another one, that should be our choice. And right now people feel hopeless because their government thinks that they're so stupid that they can't even parse out what is true and what is not true. I disagree fully. You know, we are so intelligent. We are so capable. We are literally, I believe, the smartest generation who has ever lived because we have the most amount of information and we have information in real time. We don't have to wait for a carrier pigeon to give us news. Yeah. You know? I think about that all the time. My People my age and, and you know our age think, think about, man, I wish I had a mentor. You know, you can pick any mentor you want. In a history. Lot of them have social media presence. And, That's right. and, and not yeah, and even in history, you could you can pick people from you know previous texts, uh, historic texts, ancient texts, all the way to you know Alex Hermosi if you want to look at business, and and all sorts of people can become your mentor because at the you know in our pockets we have something at our fingertips that can literally give us all the information we need. You you can go on Clubhouse and hear people talk live. You can go on Audible or uh, Scribd and hear people narrate their own stories. You can go on YouTube and listen to the biggest intellectuals. You can reach out to somebody immediately and send them an email, have a phone. I mean, we are, in my opinion, the most intelligent generation that is being controlled by people who think we're too fragile to handle and parse out information by our own volition. Maybe it's by design. Maybe it is by artificial, you know, uh, 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 you know, conditions that are put up in order to protect certain, you know, subsets of society because of the pandemic. Maybe it's because, maybe it's because we're willingly choosing to do it. I refuse, I reject that notion heavily. I think that people without free discourse, without an exchange of ideas, you know, the, the only reason a person becomes a slave is if they believe they are a slave. Intellectual, that, that's why that's why reading was banned and writing was banned. You know, since time immemorial, a slave was not allowed to read or write. And that's not just endemic to slavery here in the United States. That's any culture, right? Because the concept of becoming self-aware, the concept of having an idea is dangerous, is very dangerous. That's so true. Right? That's so true. And so we have arguably one of the most powerful instruments of change the world has ever seen, which is social media. Because now 
we get the amplification of ideas. If you were to think of it in this way, you know, like if you were to think and of platform. Yeah. It, ideas I mean, if you were plus platform. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, because now you have two people who can freely exchange an idea in real time and develop a, a meta idea, a third kind of a tertiary idea, one plus one equals three synergistic idea out of that dialogue, right? In real time. And then you can propagate it very quickly in real time. And I think that for um, a vehicle of control, when you start censoring groups of people that have tasted that, right? You are not creating pressure relief valves. When you start censoring comedy, when you start censoring these kind of pressure relief valves that allow ideas to grow and develop organically and think of society like a balloon that's always ready to pop, you know, sometimes the gas needs to be released, right? When you start removing those outlets, when you start, in a sense, thought policing people, when you start, you know, encouraging people to be very mindful of the ideas and the thoughts that they have in their head because they're an enemy to themselves and as a consequence, they're an enemy to society. That is the very, it's beyond dystopian. I mean, there was a movie back in the day called Demolition Man. I mean, basically in a society that's very similar to Demolition Man, you know, you can't touch people, you can't have red meat, you can't do this, you can't do that. You know, you, you can't, you got to watch what you say. And to me, that isn't freedom. You know, 20 years ago, the United States guaranteed felt more free than that tribe in Kenya did. Now, that tribe in Kenya probably feels a lot more free than the United States. And we have every creature comfort in the world. I'm trying to change that. And all I know is this. Um, I can't change people around me. I can't change, you know, hearts and minds. All I can do is change myself. And somewhere along the way, if other people are inspired uh, and motivated uh, to change themselves as a consequence because of some ideas that I've given them or something that I said that was interesting, I'm doing my part. That's a Starship Troopers show. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope you understand you know, what I mean. In the same regard of what you're referencing to as to why you started all this is I resonate very much so with why I started this podcast of what I'm doing. It's, you know, I had a very fortunate upbringing to see multiple perspectives in life. I got to see Eastern culture and Western culture. I got to see, you know, third, third world country and how they lived and then, you know, live, go right back to the, my first world country where, you know, as hard as I tried for when I came back to the U.S., I tried so hard to stay grounded to the experience I had there and, and incorporate it into my daily life. It only took a few weeks for me to reassimilate back into the, the first world problems of, of life and air conditioning and all these things you get, your body adapts so quickly back. It's like a, it's like a rubber band, right? It yes. Bounces right back. So, you know, so ever since I've been obsessed with, you know, how can we bring back that symbiotic, harmonious relationship because I think there is a beautiful middle ground somewhere to be made and that's only through a discussion of ideas and that's I think that's the beauty of why I do what I'm doing I I, I think that you are you're definitely touching on a nerve there because I, I I would say 
in our society, once again, it goes back to this, our only export is intellectual property. Our only export is thought. And in a sense, to find purpose sometimes, uh, one of the best things that we need to to do when we have evolved into a state where our number one export is intellectual property is to try to get to understanding why. I, I mean, people since recorded history have been trying to understand why. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, if more people encouraged a, a growth of having honest conversation. Now, it it would probably serve us all a little bit better because maybe we could see where we add value, how we raise energy into any system, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to figuring out what our differences are, we start seeking what our similarities are. And Darwin was wrong. It's not survival of the fittest. It's survival of the most cooperative, which ends up becoming the fittest. <laughs> that's there's just we, we we have we have a lot of problems to fix for sure and a lot of these problems have been exacerbated by people who capitalized on those problems without proffering solutions um, and as a consequence we have a generation of people who are lost not only were they socially distanced in their most formative years Right? They were not allowed to have human interaction. Not only did they live in a period of intense fear because their parents, the air was, was pregnant with fear. You could, you could taste it. It was accurate. But they were also subject to a time where nonstop neighbor was divided against neighbor on every metric, on every, down to a cellular level because of a political party that they voted for. Because political parties suddenly became the arbiters of morality. You know, if you wore red, you were this. If you wore blue, you were this. And suddenly, we we devolved for the probably the first time in human history where an advanced society descended down to the most tribal of totems, right? We were separated by color, <laughs> right? Right. We became a society so true, as, right? as evolved as ours became tribalized. It, Right? It's How like that idea that? of the psychology of picking a side because you see two sides rather than a then, discursive then a ideas. Complex, interconnected world full of shades of gray. Yeah, really. That's, Gosh, I mean, yeah. the, you know, the, the human existence, we, you know, we, we are lucky if at the end of our life we come face to face with somebody who's peering into our soul, into our eyes the world is closing out around us and they're reflecting a lifetime of love saying it's okay as we pass into into death can't take any of this with us right none of our not even our thoughts not our ideas not our nothing right we're lucky if we have that experience the world fades away somebody's looking into you somebody somebody's telling you they right right so i think that has a profound effect on the actions you you would take if one considers what you said, right? The For idea sure. that you don't take any of this with you. For sure. So while we're here, let's make the best.
Let's look out for one another. Let's have some empathy. Yeah, let's disagree. After we're done disagreeing, let's get back to work. Let's fix our schools. <laughs> let's fix let's fix our roads. Let's build some rockets. Let's get off. Let's start having fun, right? Mm-hmm. Let's start making good music, right? Let's start making movies where we actually have fun and not have a message every 30 seconds. Let's play some good football right. instead of having rules that stop quarter 35 times. Come on. Let's, let's get back. <laughs> All I'm saying is this. Let's get back to having fun and let's have a government that starts working for the people instead of having the people work for the government. Right. Bert, there's one last question I want to ask you. And as you're aware, this show is called Learn or Be Learned. So I love to ask the guests at the end, what is one life lesson that you either learned from others or a lesson you want others to learn from you as the takeaway message? Well, I think the one thing I've learned is that I'll always be learning. And there's one lesson that I have learned. It's that everybody that you encounter has a has a lesson that you can learn from them. I don't care how silly or how brilliant or how high up or be a bum down the street. Every interaction you have with another human being, every interaction that you have with a living thing is an opportunity to learn more about life. And let's, the older we get, the more we should be connected in a sense to have a sense of childlike amazement at this world because we're getting closer to death. And quite frankly, we're just the blip or blip. Yeah, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in this. Yeah, I believe in eternal life, et cetera, et cetera. But those are my beliefs. But at the end of the day, look, all I know is this. There is, there is something intensely beautiful about our world. And there's something I learned by reading uh, the Tao Te Ching. It said, made me laugh so I was like man this is a cold ass line uh, it said <laughs> what what is what is a good man but a bad man's teacher and what is a bad man but a good man's job and I have learned that I have to work on myself every single day it's my job right I love that idea of having childlike wonder you know if there's one huge thing that I'm grateful for is that I've held on to that idea of childlike wonder. Even just the other day, I think last week, I went to New York um, for this Spotify thing. And and I remember walking through the airport and I saw this airplane and I just stopped. I was, you know, everybody's always in a rush to do something. I stopped for a second and I look at this massive plane and I'm just thinking, wow, I can't believe humans made that. I know. That's insane. Yeah. Right. Just because I think we get so sucked into our everyday lives that we just forget that everything around us could crumble at any second. And it was all made by man, right? All made by humanity. And it's just, I don't think we, we stop and stare like we were children. You know, I think we lose that. And, um, you know, maybe it's that we get super accustomed to it, but I don't know. Well, it's, it's, uh, that old saying, stop and smell the roses. I got out of being depressed literally by stopping and smelling roses. I told myself I'll stop and smell every flower from now. And uh, there was a Brigadier General I knew. His name was Brigadier General Sinelli. The guy was a World War II veteran and ended up teaching English at West Point. 
And uh, he used to tell me, he's like, Mr. Thacker, you always try to be the little ray of sunshine in somebody else's life. And, you know, you roll your eyes like, oh, God, not again. I got to hear about the little ray of sunshine. <laughs> but it's so true. You know, it goes back to my, to my concept of adding energy into any system, it's raising the energy of any system. What's the harm in demanding that our standards be raised? We have one life to live. If we have, you know, just a finite amount of time, if we have something that, what are we afraid of? You know, because we're, you know, while you're waiting for the perfect present, while you're waiting to get ready, somebody else is unafraid to jump and fail. So what, what is the harm? What is the harm in being curious? What is the harm in trying to fix a system? What is the harm in trying to demand more from yourself? And then as a consequence from your environment around you, what's the harm in creating a more perfect union? What is the harm in demanding more from a government that makes over $20 trillion? What is the harm in asking more from, you know, a meal that you make for it to not be the tastiest meal that you could possibly, that's all I'm saying. You know, what is the harm in doing one more rep? So I, I would say the, the biggest lesson that I've learned is it's truly that, is that the only bad person I know is me. And I have to work on myself. It is my job to work on myself because that's the only way I can be a good man. And an honorable man. Well, that's for somebody else to decide after I'm gone. All right. Well, Bert, the core, I appreciate you being on this show. We had an absolutely amazing conversation and I hope the audience you know, took away a couple things and I appreciate you being here. Uh, thank you so much, Shiva. And to those people who are snoring right now, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> it's over. <laughs> it's over. Wake up. Uh, all right. Thank you, man. Thank you very much, Shiva. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>